ladies and gentlemen, now it's too late with Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back for another episode of It's Too Late. I am your host, Alan Mosley, joined as always by the number one producer in late night. It's Dave Willimowski. Dave, how are you doing? Oh, I always mean to have an answer for this. I'm struggling. No, take your time. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's going all right, you know? Yeah. One day at a time. Yeah. We're hanging that's, in there. That's not what you were telling me right before the show started. You you had some <laughs> kind of a some kind of a coronary episode and this is this is the end this is the end of Dave. No, I was saying like like I had a week of like a chest pain here and I, I figured, you know, kind of wait this out, see if it's a heart attack. I think it's just a muscle, but you never know. But I survived, so I figured it wasn't a heart attack. But then it, it migrated to my back shoulder and it kind of put me out for a few days. But I'm you know what, I'm hanging in there. What's funny about that is, is that I I had a similar thing to that, and of course, you know, you you can't help but have your mind wander. You you start to have like some tightness in the chest, or your arm <laughs> goes numb, and you're like, oh, this is it. This is the end. It's a heart attack city. One day, <laughs> uh, when I was with the official fiance of It's Too Late, Anna Kay, and I was coming downstairs, and right as I hit the bottom of the stairs, I felt that sensation like it was this like it was real tightness right here and like my arm kind of like kind of like you know like your arm falls asleep sort of a thing just just like the commercial yeah just very heart, suddenly commercial. <laughs> and i and i just looked over at her and she was actually looking at me kind of surprised like is something wrong and i looked over at her and i said i you know i i s described my symptoms and she just sat there like <laughs> and so so then of course me being of course it, it Thankfully, it wasn't a massive heart attack. Yeah. Um, but I said to her, I was like, so, because because this is what you do. Now you're going to have an argument. Is <laughs> So it, it wasn't a heart attack. But if it was a heart attack, is that what you were going to do? You were just going to sit there and watch me? <laughs> yes. See how that plays out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, well, you know, you know, don't have insurance. And, you know, like ambulance rides are really expensive. Oh. So. I heard, yeah, yeah. So just, just goodbye. <laughs> that's that's the. You know, it's, the thing is that you'll spend the money on the damn diabetic cat, but me, I have to just wait and see if my heart attack goes away. <laughs> that's that's what happens. Um. Anyway, we Walking actually out. have we have a guest coming on later this evening. The that's chief exciting. legal expert of It's Too Late, Suzanne Sherman, is going to be on the show. Um, she and I had kept up a little bit with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial when it was going on, but we had decided, this was weeks ago now, obviously at this point, we had decided we're not going to say or do anything about it until long after the trial is over and the verdict is in, because I, you know, because ever notice like in the modern era of social media and everything else that we live in, like everyone rushes to get their hot takeout on everything mm -hmm. that happens. And I had actually made a post a few weeks ago that I'm not doing that. I'm not rushing to get my hot takeout on what I think of Kyle Rittenhouse. Because really, if anything, the facts of the case are the facts of the case. They're, they're, in my mind, there's no take to have other than this is what happened. I'm going to wait until it's over and let everything die down. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the things that happened kind of around the trial and some of the lingering questions about... You know, about the justice system rather than yeah. about Kyle Rittenhouse specifically. And I thought Suzanne would be the perfect guest for that. So we have that coming up for you later in the show. But before we do that, we're going to we're going to have another quick uh, story time with Uncle Alan. 
Oh, gay. Yeah. Well, the last time we had story time with Uncle Alan, I talked about when the KKK came to my print shop wanting business cards, and that was just such a smash hit. <laughs> just Everybody more views, that. more views and downloads than anything we'd ever done. Uh, actually, actually, that's not true. Second place. The most views and downloads we ever had was the girl who was coming off her dentist appointment anesthesia mad because she couldn't suck dick. That got our most views and downloads ever. <laughs> our second most views and downloads ever was, oh, the KKK has business cards. Look at that. That's neat. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, we're going to do story time with Uncle Alan. Uh, guess who I had lunch with this past weekend? I couldn't even... Well, I'm glad you're playing along because I know you know the answer. <laughs> now, I had lunch with Tom Woods this past weekend. He and his fiancée, Jenna, were up in Nashville for a concert, and we got together and had lunch on Saturday before their flight back to Florida. That's and awesome. we talked about we talked about all sorts of stuff. Of course, we talked about, you know, the, the white race stepping up to retake America mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah. that's, that's not true, by the way. That's a joke. <laughs> Calm down, everyone. Um, but one of the things we actually talked about is Tom, on a number of occasions now, has talked about his his father. And his father, in, in the stories that he's told, so I know he, he wouldn't mind, his father was uh, of, of modest means, and um, he, he didn't even graduate high school. He got his GED many years later. Um, and, and he worked a very tough physical job. Uh, later in life, he he was a forklift operator in a hot, sweaty warehouse, um, and worked a lot of overtime to provide for for his family. and And Tom has talked a lot about, you know, being appreciative of that, and and you know, being just being able to recognize that you know that my life my life is not like my dad's life at all, you know. And if if my father were a young man in the modern economy today, like he no one would hire him like he couldn't get a job anywhere. Nobody would want to hire this guy. Um, Mm -hmm. But he worked hard at the time and he made my life better before because of it. And I actually talked to Tom a lot about how that's something that he and I uh, share a lot in common with. Uh, So my dad, uh, who's still with us, uh, uh, Tom's father passed away. my father's still with us. Uh, he worked construction his whole life. I mean, you know, preparing subdivisions for development, uh, installing utilities, laying sewer pipe, laying sewer lines. That's what my dad did for most of his life. Um, you know, he was a guy that he he got out of school, started college, but dropped out because uh, there was this war going on over there in East Asia, and he mm-hmm. knew he knew he was going to get drafted, so he just enlisted as opposed to wait to get his number called. And that actually really worked out for him because a lot of his buddies that he went to school with that tried to avoid the draft, and of course we're anti-draft on this program, but buddies of his that tried to avoid the draft and ultimately got drafted then went to Vietnam and didn't come back. My dad, seeing that this is very likely going to happen to me, he just enlisted ahead of time, and he, he wound up getting sent to Germany to work on radars. And that's where he spent the war was Germany. The war in Vietnam, not the war. Thank God, not the war in World War II. That actually would have been a worse idea. It would have been better to be in Vietnam in the 40s than it would have been to yeah. be in Germany. But he went to Germany during Vietnam and worked on satellites, and then that was that was it. That was his, that was his whole enlistment. Um, 
And when he came back home, he got into construction and he worked construction his whole life. But what's funny is, is that, uh, you know, being in construction, here's like a dirty little secret about the construction business is when, when some highfalutin engineer or architect or architect draws up plans, they could be riddled with mistakes, Mm -hmm. but they put their seal on it and then they go take it to the, to the state or the city. And then the city looks over the plans. And if they don't catch those mistakes, you know what they do? Or they don't care to catch them? They put their seal on it. It's approved. All right, go build. But now the dumb old redneck construction workers who were just going by your plans that you drew up with all of your degrees and expertise and that you got approved by the city and all their codes and inspections, it's actually on the contractors that if a mistake gets made, it's their responsibility to fix it when they're just going by the plans you got approved. So, so mm-hmm. what it ultimately boils down to is, is that the eggheads, the ones making six figures, who are the ones who are allegedly the learned folks who are putting these plans together, they rarely ever take any responsibility for poor performance, frankly. Whereas the, the old rednecks down in the ditch, they're the ones getting blamed if something goes wrong. And so my dad, not being an engineer, having no license or degree, was quite often the one who was actually fixing the plans and resubmitting them to get the changes approved, trying to save his employer money. You know, the, wow. the, the guy, the guy who couldn't, who couldn't pass muster, who would never get hired in any firm and that the state would never allow to work as a licensed engineer. He's the one fixing the licensed engineer's mistakes. And so that's who, that's, that's who my dad is. Um, and Tom and I share that in common. And so the reason why I tell that story is, is that, I know that there's a lot of people on social media nowadays, and, and, and even in our community, that like to argue about everything. I, I think this week all the arguments were about hobos and playgrounds and public libraries, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're still starving people in Yemen. Foreign policy is still mm-hmm. a disaster and only going to get worse again long before it ever gets better. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell trial is going on right now, and you guys are fighting with people you agree with on 90% of things about what to do with the hobos at the playground. I'm like, good God, you fucking clowns. Anyway, <laughs> I will always have a soft spot for just the regular salt-of-the-earth types who don't bother themselves with any of that stuff you guys are arguing about. They're just trying to live their lives and do the best for them and theirs. And uh, the people on social media arguing about going out of their way to find things to argue about and then having the edgiest hot takes first. Let me put out my video first and what I think about everything. We could do mm-hmm. a lot. We could do with a lot less of that and a lot more people just trying to take care of them families. Definitely. This got really wholesome all of a sudden. I don't know what just happened. Yeah. This is supposed to be Adam funny. Here. Adam Sikosin's already <laughs> turned off the show. This is too I, much. I missed, I missed the lighthearted part. Guys, we're going to be back with the meme of the week and the viewer mail right after this commercial break. Don't go away.
Hey, uh, hey, Dave. Yes, Alan. What time is it? It's time for meme of the week. White smoke emanates from the Wuhan lab chimneys, signaling a new variant has been named. Well, that's nice. Oh, good. Yeah, good. that's really good. I like that. Yeah. Did you? I know that this it's like the worst sequel of all time, but did you ever watch The Godfather Part 3? I can't say for sure I ever watched Part 1. That's fine. So, guys, anyone out there with any uh, OBS <laughs> or production experience, It's Too Late with Alan Mosley is looking for a new producer. Just send your email to info at alanmosley.tv. But we do have a bonus meme. Check out the bonus meme. When you ask oh, what my. she wants for Christmas, she says she wants to run guns to Australia. That's that's a little bit explicit, I think, for this that show. It is really explicit. Because wow. <laughs> everyone knows what that is. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's their fault. You've never seen The Godfather? No. I mean, I, no, I have not. I think that's what you and Mary should be watching on Sunday night is The Godfather. We'll we'll have to put it on the wheel. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> God, that's just pretend you that haven't have. seen The Godfather. No, I finally saw Scarface the other day. I got it. I got it out of the. Uh, they have that five dollar bin at at Walmart, mm-hmm. and I found Scarface in there. I'd never seen it, so we we just watched that a few months ago. Actually, I'm not sure. Time's weird. It's like that the, was pretty good. It's like the greatest movie of all time. Like a lot of people put it at number one, The Godfather. Yeah. So a lot of re- a lot of references to it, I hear. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's what they do when it's the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> Jesus Christ! All right. On that note, boy, that should have been. I hope you guys are taking notes at home. This is the type of stuff you should be asking viewer mail questions about, so that we can have arguments. But we've already got our questions for this week. Let's go ahead and answer the viewer mail. Sorry, too busy watching Godfather. It's time for viewer mail. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry. All right. Uh, Jonathan Cranes writes, Dear Alan and Dave, why did God let the Island Boys become popular? Who are the Island the Boys? The Island Boys? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how popular they are because I have no idea who the Island Boys are. Um, are, are, we, are we too old for that? I, I guess. I don't know. Um, I, I actually typed in cause I was like, is this like the beach boys? Is this something similar or something different? I actually typed it in right before we started the show. Cause I saw Jonathan's question and I saw, I saw spiky hair and face tattoos and immediately. Yeah. Me- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Check that out. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm um, glad I don't know who they are. So your daughter brings her first boyfriend home and it's one of them. What do you do? Oh my gosh. See, daughter, daughters are like a weird thing because if if you react wrong, then they'll lean into it. Because I was uh, I was thinking I would take the assault charge, but then suddenly he's the bad boy, and you know that could be dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, he could also be dead. So, I take the murder charge. <laughs> yeah. Um, yikes! You know what? The real question is: is why does Jonathan know about the Island Boys? Aha! There you go. <laughs> You got to turn this around. Uh, Andrew Avery writes, Dear Alan and Dave, is it wrong that I go to a fish concert just to appreciate the scales? 
Is that an aquarium? Or, or are we talking music? I Honestly, I've only known one person in my life that was a big fan of the band Fish, and they, mm-hmm. and they are exactly who you think they are. That's yep, all I work with the guy. I, that's all I'm going to say. Follows him around. Yeah. <laughs> like, I could see him in the crowd and say, that's a Fish fan. That's... Yep. All right. And they never just go to a concert. They follow them around. Yeah. It's kind of creepy, really. <laughs> um, I wonder who goes to an Island Boys concert. Oh. All right. People go. I mean... That's a thing. That's a thing, yeah. That's the thing. So we actually talk. We're actually going to talk about this later in the show. Is that people will always rant and rave about? Oh, these people are on news or on TV, and they're so stupid, and I hate them. Why are they on TV? And I'm like, what? Well, you're watching them. That's why they're on, and you're talking about them on top of that. So this is all Jonathan's fault. Um, Eric Eli writes, dear Alan and Dave, can you predict the next media craze that will dominate our lives? I don't really know if it's a media craze, but I mean, I mean, we're—I feel like we're long overdue for sex bots, aren't we? We are. I keep seeing videos for inv- advancements, but nothing at Target. <laughs> keep on seeing video. You're keeping up with it, then. You got, you got your, you got your notifications turned on. For you sex know, I'm bots. scrolling through YouTube and. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, YouTube. I mean, they—they they had fembots on Austin Powers back in the day, so like. Like, we can't make this a thing yet? Like, why don't I have a young Elizabeth Hurley fembot yet? This is ridiculous. This is an outrage. That's a market failure. We got to get Walter Block back on to ask him, why don't we have sex bots yet? And is this a market (laughs) failure? That'll that'll teach him. (laughs) This used... You know, this used to be a serious show. You remember? All right. We talked about it. Ron Paul, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Laudario writes, Dear (laughs) Alan and Dave, do those copper bracelets they sell at the pharmacy do anything or not? What pharmacy do you go to? I don't... Are they they like the first alert bracelets? I don't go to pharmacies where they sell, you know, tokens and jingoism at the front counter and say (laughs) this will cure your puff penis. They just, you know... Oh, as a cure. Yeah. Oh. So I, I think, in short, no, they don't do anything. In long, Lyle, you got to get the hell out of Mississippi. That's all, <laughs> that's all I got to say. This is the second or third week in a row we've lambasted Lyle for giving us a question. He's a great fan. Shows up yeah. every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the show a few weeks ago. Frankly, he was great. the only damn one that showed up dressed up ready to go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, Clay Davis writes, Dear Alan and Dave, this is a two-part question, so prepare yourself. Did you know A1 steak sauce contains raisins? And two, is is A1 steak sauce even necessary? So, I didn't know that A1 steak sauce contains raisins. Same. But it's not necessary because... If a steak is good, you you don't need steak sauce. And if a steak needs steak sauce, you just throw it in the trash. That's the correct answer. Yeah. You you point your finger in your waiter or wife's face and say, make it again. Mm-hmm. Yep. No. But you don't eat it. No. Never eat that second one. We don't we don't play around with our pieces of meat, do we, Dave? No. All right. 
Uh, Ryan Seifert writes, Dear Alan and Dave, <laughs> when meth addicts go swimming, do they wear Speedos? Oh, man. So Who, I actually, I actually, so, so Ryan Seifert said that. Oh. And I'll, I'll have you know, I, I messaged him and said, um, we only allow one pun master on this show. So you guys yeah. got to start sending us real questions or you got, you got to step off. And his answer was to send me a picture of him drinking A1 steak sauce out of the bottle. To assert dominance. It's, it's certainly to <laughs> assert something. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, Rachel Watson Kennerly writes, Dear Alan and Dave, Does Dave worry about becoming another co-host of Christmas Past? <laughs> so... <laughs> So first of all, this guy's never seen The Godfather, so I don't even recognize myself as having a producer anymore. Um, and and second of all, he's the producer, not the co-host. That's why oh. we that's why we don't have a split screen where I'm on one side and Dave is on the other side. He's he's the producer. He's the one that puts this whole thing together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just sit here looking great, like. Yeah. This this whole scene is just wasted for like three seconds of show. What do you mean scene? <laughs> that's your that's your studio, Dave. What are you talking yeah. about? I, I call it the scene. You you guys want to meet up at the scene? Yeah. By the way, I <laughs> I really hope people appreciate the fact that Dave Dave pull pull your studio back up here. All you right. now have the recording time on yeah. screen so that when people say to themselves, "God, how long does this show last?" they can now see yeah. it in real time. Yeah, I got. I got to get your camera linked into there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Adam Sakosin writes, "Dear Alan and Dave, what is the most near-death experience you've had?" Dave, what is the most near-death experience that you've had? It's hard to say because I, I grew up Polish, so there's there's a lot of them. Um, for some reason, the one that always comes up is I, we were we were. <laughs> We were camping on my cousin's front porch. We had a tent set up on the porch. It was a big porch. And they had like this big wooden, I don't even know what it was, leaning up against the uh, the wall of the porch. And there it was a little storm. It wasn't quite stormy. It was just warm. And, and my cousin told me to come outside. And he said, come check out this this heat lightning over, over the pasture over there. And, and we kind of sat on the front steps. And we're looking at the heat lightning. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And then a breeze comes by and knocks that giant heavy piece of wood and just totally flattens the tent that I was just in. And it's funny that I think of that as a near-death experience. I think because I was little, when this same cousin has taken me uh, rappelling off of railroad trestles and stuff like that, which would probably be more dangerous. Probably. <laughs> I actually, this is this is what should have been story time with Uncle Alan right here. Um, my closest near-death experience was when I was in college, um, I worked at Lowe's Home Improvement to... That's to, to pay some bills and stuff. I was going to say to pay my way through college, but you can't pay for college. <laughs> I heard it's a great place to work. I keep saying. Um, well, then, then don't listen to this story. So <laughs> I worked in the paint department. And are you familiar with dry lock? That, that, heard of it. That, that really dense stuff that you like put on your foundation brick and stuff to like waterproof oh, and yeah. things like that. That stuff's it's So it's yeah. very heavy because it's, because it's so dense you know, like a like a five gallon drum of it is a lot heavier than like you know regular paint or whatever. Um, and 
you know how in like these warehouse stores, like like Lowe's and Home Depot, they have those really tall shelves, and in in in, in the top stock, they've got like like pallets of stuff wrapped up with plastic, and you know, so it, so that you don't have accidents. But they have a company policy where if you're using the little forklift machine to go up there and get something, you have to block off the aisles, right? So that if you bump into the shelf and something were to fall, which is hard to do, by the way, like you gotta you gotta get like a running start to ram these things <laughs> to tip them over. Um, it won't kill someone. Well, no. surprise, surprise! It's it's late one evening, right before close. I'm working in that department. Back here in the back, homeboys are getting down the. They're getting down something, but they're working where the pallet of, like, four stacks of, like, these five-gallon drums of dry lock are. And mm. they didn't block off the aisles. And they rammed the thing. And you see the pallet, you know, the, the plastic's breaking. You're seeing the pallet oh, yeah. do this. So there's there's about to be an uh-oh. That's mm. what we call them. That's, that's in the manual. They're uh-ohs. <laughs> And I look over and I see this little girl, like, I mean, she she can't be five years old, standing underneath where these things are oh my falling over. And I actually ran, and I'll admit, I basically tackled the girl. I ran, I was trying to get her, but like, you know, like, she doesn't know what's going yeah. on. So when I grab her, she like goes limp, like, oh. Stranger I, danger. Stranger danger. And so we basically, <laughs> I, I basically shove her, we fall over. I'm trying not to crush her. Like now I'm crushing her instead of the dry lock. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we fall over into like the next aisle and that stuff comes down. Boom. There's dry lock. Every, like now I'm covered in all this gunk and everything else. It hit the floor. And then, so first of all, I was like, I should, what am I doing? Just let that girl die. Was <laughs> it, was that my, it's not my problem. Then to add insult to injury, her parents then got mad because it happened, which is totally understandable, mm -hmm. and yelled yeah. at me because I was so rough with their daughter. And that That's was the day I decided to be <laughs> that was the day I decided to be a libertarian <laughs> and never help anyone else ever again. <laughs> that was it. All right. Um well we're out of time. We're actually out of time, and I actually won't do the rest of the questions, even as opposed oh. to just doing them all, because we have a guest, and I can't, I can't ruin the show because we have such an awesome guest. Uh, we're yeah. going to be back with Suzanne Sherman of the Wasatch Report and the Red Hot Chili Prepper right after this commercial break. Don't go away. Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for It's Too Late with Alan Mosley. Email us at info at alanmosley.tv. Guys, welcome back to the show. Our guest this evening is the chief legal expert of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley and also the host of the Wasatch Report and the Red Hot Chili Prepper podcast. It's Suzanne Sherman. Suzanne, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you, Alan. Uh, it's good to see you, too. Now, you and I had discussed back and forth a little bit as the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was going on. But we had decided weeks ago that, you know what, we're not going to say anything until after the trial is concluded on the, on the off chance that some sort of insane allegations or, or verdict would come across. And, and I feel like it probably ultimately played out exactly the way you and I thought it would or should. Um, but now that it's a little bit in the rear view, we wanted to spend a little bit of time today talking about not so much 
the actual trial or Kyle Rittenhouse himself, because the, the facts of the case are all easily accessible for everyone on the internet who wants to spend five seconds to look at them. Uh, but, but I wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about today about some of the, some of the outer um, effects of the trial, such as they may be, um, and, and some legal terms that you hear bandied out now that the trial is over. So I want to start with this, Suzanne. Should this, in your, in your professional opinion, should this have gone to trial? No. No, just simple no. Simple no. And, you know, so many people watched the entire trial. I don't even know where they were playing it, but they watched the entire thing. And all I needed to see was the exact footage sure. at the moment where he was on the ground and he was holding his rifle and there's a, an assailant coming at him with a pistol. Interestingly, I think it was NPR had a headline that said that the uh, victim, supposed victim in the case, I forgot his name already, uh, had his hands up at the time, which was in direct contravention to the testimony of that witness. So the media has been lying about this. And, and like I said, I'm consistent. Alan, you know, notwithstanding who the parties were, had the roles been reversed, I still don't think it should have gone to trial. So, I mean, it, it could have been Kyle as the assailant and the other gentleman on the ground. So I think the whole thing was ridiculous. Okay, so so on that note then, you you feel like it shouldn't have gone to trial, but it did. So if, if you were going to speculate for a moment, why did it? Fear. I think there's we're, we're deciding, you know, in, in California, when I used to practice criminal defense, uh, we would have preliminary hearings that could be, you know, instead of a grand jury indictment. So at a preliminary hearing, they would determine whether or not there was enough evidence where a jury would likely uh, come up with a conviction or, or pro enough cause to hold them to answer for this. And part of that is how would a jury rule on this? And I thought this was so cut and dry. But, you know, we have a different standard for a court of law. And now we have the court of public opinion weighing in. I honestly think that there would have been so much upheaval and unrest that they were afraid to not prosecute or the prosecution generally believed that this was a, a valid case to bring forth. Well, on that note then, because so oftentimes when things like this happen, when, when the initial emotions have sort of cooled down and, and, and the verdict is sort of in the rear view now, people start to then look back and ask certain questions. So, so with that sort of sentiment in mind, I'd ask you the question, if, so this case absolutely shouldn't have gone to trial, but it did. You could speculate why that, that does or doesn't happen. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if something is an absolute clear-cut case and yet it goes to trial, who ultimately is to blame for that going forward? You know, let me back up for a moment. I think if there is one good thing about this having gone to trial is everything was laid out there. The information is for them to, for everybody to see. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that the media, many facts that the media twisted, and we'll get into that in the next segment. But I think what's important is now they can, nobody can say, well, we never got to go to trial. The facts never came to light. And because of white supremacy and white privilege, he never was brought forth for charges. So the charges were brought forth, whether or not we agree with that. And he was justifiably acquitted. So that does take that away from the other side. They can't say, well, we just didn't think because he's white, we're not going to put him on trial. They don't have that anymore. Not that that's going to stop them. Okay, so 
moving on to the next thing. So here's a term that's sort of the basis for for tonight's episode, uh, and it's something you're starting to see creep up more and more in the news. Uh, so before we get into the to this particular situation, just to help define for the audience, what is malicious prosecution? Malicious prosecution occurs when you have in this in this instance uh, the the people or the district attorney bringing forth charges that aren't justified or supported by fact or law. And it could be for a reason that is, again, uh, due to bad faith. So there could be a family member that has a grudge, for instance, I'm going beyond this case. So for any case that is beyond something that could be justified in fact or law. Intending What's... to con intending where there's intent also to com cause harm, mm -hmm. beg your pardon, uh, for the person put on trial or being prosecuted. And they also have malicious civil prosecution as well. So, so malicious prosecution is a, is a thing that exists. There's, it's, it's legally defined. I, and I'd assume that there's supposed to be rules in place uh, to not only prevent such a thing from happening, but then penalties if, if, if prosecutors were to conduct themselves in such a manner. What sort of rules or penalties are in place that, that allegedly prevent prosecutors from targeting people on, uh, on personal or extrajudicial grounds? Well, because of qualified immunity, they're not going to be sued civilly, but uh, there are penalties and sanctions available within the legal community. So the Bar Association of that state could sanction that individual. Will that happen? Absolutely not in this case. Well, that's a that's a theme, Suzanne, that I know you and I have addressed on this program a number of times, and it's, it's sort of an ongoing project of ours to talk about uh, not just qualified immunity, but going higher up the chain from just the, the typical beat cop to district attorney's offices, to how often you see um, malicious intent and, and, and shady practices being done by prosecutors, but, but not just that they do it, but that they can get caught, but there's so few instances where genuine justice is brought to them for their practices. How, what is something just just a, a again sort of just speculating for you what's what's a what's a basic common sense change you would make if i i give you the magic wand you're now you're now the the legal and and justice czar you're you're literally lady justice what is a change that you would make to prevent future Kyle Rittenhouses from having video evidence that is exculpatory but then being put through the rigors of a trial you know, I, I don't think there is a penalty you can have because, I, again, going back to the court of public opinion, society demanded a trial. And I think that they were afraid of the unrest. So, you know, in a case like this that is so charged with accusation of white supremacy and racism and this gentleman, we've seen how the press has twisted these stories around. We were talking about this before we started rolling with Jen Basaki's comment. Uh, I, I don't think there I don't think there's fix, any fixing this. Uh, but uh, again, <clears throat> excuse me, if you do have a case where it is clearly an example of malicious prosecution, I think they should be sanctioned and, and the uh, the attorneys involved should either be disbarred or suspended for a significant amount of time. Well, mo moving on to the kind of the, the other side of a trial is is the jury. And in this case, ultimately, the verdict that came out was was the right one and is, is the one that, I mean, we all would have naturally expected to be the verdict. But, you know, that verdict didn't come back that same afternoon, did it? You know, that was with, crazy. With, with each passing day and with each, you know, little note from the jury to the judge or to the court for a little bit more information, a little bit more guidance, 
I think I think people, you know, you you, you put yourself in Kyle Rittenhouse's shoes, right? Like this is your no matter no matter how confident your team might be feeling, this is your life on the line, and you're you're going to be just sweating bullets until you hear that not guilty, right? Um, Again, I think because of the fear factor involved in in the decision to prosecute this case, I think the jury also had legitimate concerns over um, maybe accusations that they rushed to judgment on this case. So I think in the long run, as harrowing a weight as it must have been for this guy, that it's going to serve him in the long run because nobody can say that they didn't carefully deliberate. You know, this is pure supposition on my part, but I really do think members of the jury had have a legitimate fear for their future well-being if this had come out in this short amount of time it should have. I mean, I reached my conclusion pretty quick based on my experience as a former firearms instructor and defense attorney as well. Well, you you you're you're kind of getting ahead of me to my next question. So in the in the era of social media and fake news, are juries genuinely in more threat? now than ever before you know i had raised that question once on social media and somebody said this was something going on for has that has been going on for a long time you know jury tampering witness tampering and that sort of thing and i think what i'd have to say is everything is is very charged up right now and i i my personal opinion is yes i i think that that's this even went to trial and how the media piled on him is indicative of of the the pulse of opinion right now because clearly these all of these uh, the newscasters and the politicians are favoring those that are causing the damage and the destruction whatever the cause may be however just it may be ultimately destroying people's property and hurting people is absolutely aggressive but the media and many of the politicians are okay as long as one side is doing that so ultimately we're question we're forced with the question well. The only option, if you don't want to have this kind of a a persecution, if you defend yourself lawfully, is just to stand down and let these people run rampant. Like the mayor of Baltimore said a few years back, these people just need space to destroy. Well, okay, so I'm I'm handing you back the magic wand then, Suzanne. Here's, Here's your next challenge. What do you think then can be done to help to help secure the the entire jury system? You know, we had mentioned sequestration, uh, that they'd be, uh, somebody said they were really surprised about that. It's really difficult with it, this era, especially of social media and how easily people are, be, are, are able to be found out where they live. And I, I sure. just don't think there is. And this is a problem. We've talked about this in other cases, too, where we get jury members who, through no fault of their own, are also caught up in the same system and then have to deal with threats and violence. I don't know if I'd want to have if I would have liked to have sat on that trial. That would have been a a very intimidating and daunting thing. So I I do applaud them for doing it. Many of them don't have a choice, but you can always get out of jury duty if they know that you really don't want to be there. Well, that's that's such a you know that we could do a whole episode on just that because I know that there's people 
you know, who would say that, well, look, I don't want to have to just deal with the issues and the pausing of my own personal life to, to be on a jury. And I certainly don't want to be put in a position where I wake up one day and my name, address, and telephone number have been doxxed and now my information is made public and I'm getting calls from, you know, everyone and their grandma being told that I'm a racist or a white supremacist or whatever. On the other hand, the if if you have even a shred of belief in the system— then being on the jury, if you were, if you did find yourself on a jury, you know, use the, use the example of, you know, a marijuana charge, you know, you and I know what jury nullification is and you oh, and I'd I would, love to be, I'd love yes, to be on one of those trials. Yes. Absolutely. And you and I would be the kind of people who would say, oh no, no, I'd, I'd be happy to help. And we would go and yeah. be on the jury. And so, and so I'm a little bit torn on that, but I, I want to switch gears here for a moment before we take our, our first commercial break. Um, both sides of of this, the the people who were who were supportive of Kyle Rittenhouse and the people who were were anti Kyle Rittenhouse wanted to see him buried underneath the, the prison. They, I feel like both sides were very dramatic in what the ramifications of this verdict would be. You know, the pro Kyle Rittenhouse people were saying, "Well, look, if he's found guilty, then that's that's going to mean that you you just have to let an angry mob beat you to death. You can't defend yourself." And then the and then the anti Kyle Rittenhouse people were saying, "Oh, well, if they find this kid not guilty, then that means they're you know all the bubbas are just going to come out here with their machine guns and they're just going to start mowing down waves of protesters." D do you buy into the concept that that one trial like this has such far-reaching ramifications, or do you think that that's just a lot of drama? Strictly legally, no, because no judges or no judge is going to hear this case and decide that the the Kyle Rittenhouse case set precedence to the unique facts of the one before that particular court. But you know, the thing is, it, it is going to have an impact on, again, the court of public opinion, and people are going to come up with their own conclusions, as we saw during the, you know, and, and leading up to the trial themselves. But this is not going to impact the criminal trials, and it shouldn't, of, of other cases. Like I said, this doesn't set precedent, but it's going to set precedent in the opinion, you know, in the minds of, of certain members of the public. And going back really quick to answer your question about how we can protect the jury, the only way that I think you could make sure that somebody would be secure for the rest of their life would probably some, be some sort of variation of the witness protection program. But then you're, again, relying on government competence to keep yourself safe and, uh, and, and beyond the reach of these people. And not only that, who would want to? Relying on government competence or incompetence. The only thing you can rely <laughs> on is government incompetence. Right. Um, <laughs> on that note, guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to be back to talk more with Suzanne Sherman about bad legal takes. If you're enjoying tonight's show, consider supporting the program by becoming a member of our Patreon. That's over at patreon.com slash Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back to the show. We're still here with Suzanne Sherman, host of the Wasatch Report and the Red Hot Chili Prepper. Suzanne! Alan! Should Kyle Rittenhouse sue absolutely everyone on Earth for defamation? Yes. In fact, I saw a funny meme saying that uh, he and Nick Sandman should share custody of CNN. So, yes, I think he I think he actually should. And in one of his post-trial interviews, he used the word malice. 
And that word was put in there for a reason, and that hearkened, uh, in my memory, New York Times versus Sullivan. Okay, well, since you brought that up, tell the audience a little bit, what is New York Times versus Sullivan? I actually remember studying this as an undergrad in a communications class, and this was a landmark case that had to do with uh, the protection of speech, um, and it was a defamation suit. And I can go into some of the facts here, but essentially it established a standard of actual malice when news agencies were criticizing at, at first they were talking about public officials. And the standard that the Supreme Court came up with was that if they got it wrong, if they got the facts wrong, it couldn't, it wasn't enough to just be wrong. They had to show either a intentional disregard for the truth or it, it had to be reckless disregard for the truth, not just ignorance. So they raised the standard. And I, I think uh, it was Hugo Black and Arthur Goldberg said that the separate views uh, that the court ruled, they, they felt that this was too restrictive. And I'm reading an article here too. William O. Douglas said that the right to discuss public affairs and to criticize the government should be unconditional. So, um, you know, applying this to Kyle, this, this, this standard went just beyond public officials. It went to police officers or now public figures. And I remember in my constitutional law class, we were discussing this case and the question came about, well, what or whom is a public figure? And I remember the definition, I forgot what case it was from, but it was considered anybody who voluntarily interjected themselves into the vortex of public controversy. So now you have to ask yourself, well, as a 17-year-old kid, or 18 at the time, I don't remember, who went to protect some, some property during times of riots and destruction, did he voluntarily interject himself into a public controversy, or was he just trying to do the right thing as he knew it at the time? Well, you know, Suzanne, I'm I'm certainly not a lawyer like you are, and so I, I don't I don't understand all that legal gobbledygook you just said. All I know is is I have heard it said that there's a difference between believing that he should or should sue versus thinking he'll actually win many or any actual cases. Pre precisely because, as you brought up, uh, the 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 interpretations and the standards are set in such a way that being able to prove some of that is is such an impossibly high burden that it's very, very difficult to win a defamation suit. But I wanted to bring up one particular example, uh, just because, not that I think he would win a suit, but because I think it's just an egregious example. You brought up the uh, the question that Jen Psaki, the White House press conference, uh, our press secretary said, uh, a reporter asked her, you know, Joe Biden had, had basically... Uh, accused Kyle Rittenhouse of being a white supremacist. Um, and now that the trial is over and Kyle was found not guilty, and I, I I can't possibly know what is in the kid's heart, but there's no evidence to suggest that he has any ties to white supremacy. The reporter asked Jen Psaki, well, is the president going to apologize? Seems like an apology would be in order. And she doubled down with her righteous indignation and said, uh, no, the president would not be apologizing because, you know, he's just a straight shooter, that old maverick Joe Biden. He calls it the way he sees it. And he's he's speaking truth to power because, you know, Suzanne, that's what presidents do. They're the ones speaking truth to power. And he called it the way he sees it. That kid's a white supremacist. What do you say to this particular example of defamation? 
you know, the answer is going to be is. I guess the question to ask, is he going to suffer from qualified immunity or a benefit, I should say, from qualified immunity? I don't think any president's going to suffer or have to go through a lawsuit for something he said defamatory as it is. I think it was a defamation case. What he's, I think what he said was defamatory. I beg your pardon. But what really was troubling on here was how she turned everything around completely, saying that he was a, uh, that people shouldn't be allowed to run around the streets with assault rifles and destroying the communities they claim to represent. Well, what she described was the people he was trying to defend his friends and his property from. So, you know, this was gaslighting in the extreme. So I don't think that Biden's going to have to worry about a defamation suit, but I do think that the news agencies and other reporters absolutely are, and justifiably so. And even if you want to use the actual malice standard, Alan, I honestly think he could win with that standard because their distortions of the truth and their lies were so egregious and the information was readily available for anybody out there that wanted to uh, become that, that wanted to have access to it. Everybody saw the whole list of, of truths that came out during the trial. Everybody could hear them. That would have been the time for mass retractions. And you have to remember also, truth is a complete defense to defamation and libel. Nothing they said was true. So I don't anticipate lawsuits going to trial. I anticipate a lot of settlements in his favor. Well, kind of kind of switching gears a little bit, on, but on the same note, um, everyone likes to laugh and point at, at or what are referred to as bad legal takes. Now, goodness knows in the age of social media, you can go on Twitter and get as many millions of bad legal takes as you would like from all the, the armchair Judge Judys out there. Um, however, there was also all of these, all of these corporate press outlets that each one of them has their own unique, you know, chief legal expert or, or legal columnist uh, or, you know, some, some, someone on retainer who comes on in these little five minute soundbite segments and during the midday news to either, to either react, you know, it's a glorified reaction video to what was said or done that day during a trial, or they're coming on to, to quite frankly, speak to their audience as if they're children to tell them what to think. And these, I mean, these are supposed to be the experts, right? I mean, these are people who, I mean, I don't consider them to be experts, but in all fairness, I mean, the, most of these people do have law degrees. I mean, these, these are people who, who went to all these Ivy League schools and then rose up the ranks and, and they're all constitutional scholars like President Obama or what have you. And those people, way more often than not, were getting on national television and speaking pure, outright nonsense. Just factually nonsensical statements, both legally and in terms of this particular case. I, I have a hunch before I turn this over to you that you're not exactly surprised. But I want you to share with us maybe a few particular examples you've come across of particularly egregious bad legal takes. On this one, you know, honestly, I didn't pay attention to what the media was saying other than some of the things I heard. They were justifying his being assaulted because he didn't belong there in the first place. Um, something as ridiculous as he crossed state lines, none of which <clears throat> I think a lot of the, the, the claims they made were false or 
they were absolutely irrelevant. And by saying also that he shouldn't have been there, well, we're blaming the victim there, aren't we? Well, if a, if a woman gets sexually assaulted, why was she walking down that dark alley by herself? You know, they're not going to make those claims, but there's a different standard of judgment that's going to go for, again, as we've seen the past several years now, the, the people that are throwing milkshake cups that are filled with quickcrete, throwing eggs at political rallies, um, assaulting uh, and, and swarming uh, Rand Paul and his wife on the street, and those that are trying to defend themselves also of note that couple in, I believe it was Illinois, who went out and defended their homes by holding their firearms. Not a wise thing to do from a firearm safety pr uh, perspective, but they stood up to the mob. And as you stand up to the mob, you have to be prepared for the court of public opinion to turn against you. That's just the way it is right now. And here's also the problem with New York Times versus Sullivan. This was nothing more than a power grab by the Supreme Court. Because at the time that this case came about, I think it was 1964, these kind of standards and, and how, the, how, uh, how it would be determined whether a person was a public official or a private citizen and how the standards of negligence or, or reckless disregard for the truth would be handled were left up to state laws. So what do we have here now? Another example of incorporation, which is nothing more than a power grab by the Supreme Court. And this article I have here even says in subsequent rulings, the court vastly expanded the protection for the news media to apply not just to lawsuits by public officials, but also to public figures. And we talked about that right now. Anybody in the news or the public eye. These days with smartphones, everybody walking around is their own is 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 their own reporter. They can get this footage, so you can be an inter, you know, interjected into the public eye just by being on the street and and having uh, a, a, an event occur around or or to you. It's funny how the uh, the protections are vastly expanded <laughs> to protect these mega corporate media outlets over the interest of individuals. Funny how that always tends to play out. Uh, and, then, I, I, and then they they make this uh, supposedly First Amendment case and they miss the point entirely where once again, just like firearms, they ask, well, what kind of guns and heller does the Second Amendment protect? Or what kind of speech does the First Amendment protect? The answer is none in either instance because the Bill of Rights are simply reaffirmations that there are certain areas of legislation that Congress was never delegated by the states. So this is, again, a power grab. And the lawyers, you will see, eat this up. And this is what they spew on network television constantly. I wrote an article about this for Don Livingston. It's on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com, called The Problem with Lawyers and the Constitution. And when we're going through law school, we are taught to completely ignore the 10th Amendment and go by the 14th Amendment when it comes to the federal judiciary, uh, federal judiciary, <laughs> that's hard, federal judiciary overturning the will of the state legislatures and the will of the people via their elected representatives. And they're all okay with that, but this is unconstitutional. This is not supported by constitutional history, but everybody's okay with that. Uh, we, we just call them judicial temple monkeys around here, Suzanne. I call them the black robe messiahs. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I did want to make the point really quick because uh, we're running out of time that 
the probably the number one bad legal take that you hear repeated even now and that's and this is perhaps the most frustrating part is that at this point all the facts of of the Kyle Rittenhouse case are easily accessible to you. You can get on your computer and in 15 seconds have all the intimate details of the case, the trial, the evidence, the video, all of it. And yet you still have people spouting just bold-faced lies everywhere you look. And the and the biggest one probably is the state's lines nonsense. So first of all, is do we live in a country where people are being judged because they went from one state to the next at all? That's ridiculous on its face. But two, the big one is is that there are still people to this day saying, well, he should be locked up because he was a minor with a gun he couldn't legally have and he crossed state lines with it. That's factually not true. He never crossed state lines with the firearm. The firearm was in Kenosha, number one. Number two, uh, the, the gun law there, which, of course, you and I are the type of people that believe all gun laws are infringements, so I'm not, we're not arguing incrementalism here. We do believe all gun laws are infringements, but going by their own letter of their unconstitutional gun laws, their laws say that for long, for long arms and rifles, and of which the AR would fall under, that the, the legal limit is actually 16, and he was 17 at the time. So even by their own unconstitutional gun law, he still had a legal right to possess that firearm, nor did he cross state lines with the firearm. And right now, Suzanne, right this very minute, you could get online and probably find some sort of chief legal expert for MSNBC literally say the the opposite of what I just said, even though this is factually correct, we know this to be the truth of the case. How can this go on? How can how can we allow ourselves to continue on in a society where the quote-unquote legal experts can go on TV to this very minute and say what is absolutely factually incorrect and get away with it? They get away with it because people watch them. It makes them money to say this because people go to them for information. And there's really no excuse for that, especially when they have shows like yours out here. And, you know, we're not partisan driven. We said at the beginning of the show, had the roles been reversed, we still would have come to the same conclusion. The other thing, too, about crossing state lines, they never seem to have a problem when, um, remember in the previous administration, we had all these buses bringing people into different states from all over the place to participate in um, riots, protests, whatever you want to call them. That wasn't a problem for them there. Also, I believe the gentleman that ha was shot in the arm, uh, I think he was also a felon in possession of a firearm. Now, I am Correct. also with you on this one. I don't care if somebody's a felon. If they are so dangerous that they cannot be trusted with a firearm, then they shouldn't be free. If they do commit an act, with a, you know, an act of violence using a firearm as a felon, then you can enhance their sentence appropriately and accordingly. But to um, if Kyle had been a felon and been in possession of this firearm, you could just you, they wouldn't be quiet on that like they were when the guy on their side was. Suzanne, where can people go to support you and check out the Red Hot Chili Prepper? Uh, there's a show on Anchor FM, the Red Hot Chili Prepper podcast. It's also on Google Podcasts and a plethora of other platforms, as well as the Wasatch Report radio show. My website, and you can reach me through there also, is SuzanneCSherman.com. And from there, you can also read my articles on preparedness, as well as my published articles talking about constitutional history and federalism. Finally, just in time for Christmas, do check out the Lost Frontier Handbook at the Lost Frontier Handbook 
Facebook.net. And that is my book on self-reliance, Learn the Way of the Pioneers. It is your ultimate guide to self-reliance. Thank you, Alan. We're going to get you out of here on this one. Oh, no. Is lasagna a casserole? I'm going with yes. That is the correct answer. A casserole is one. any single baked dish, and a cas- and lasagna is exactly that. Lasagna is a casserole. Suzanne, thank you so much. Guys, we're going to be back to wrap up the show right after this commercial break. Don't go away. Hi, guys. It's Alan here, and I want to take a moment to let you know about one of our supporters who started a new business. Laura Moreau sells 50 different health and wellness all-natural products from weight loss, supplements, energy enhancers, body toning, longer and stronger hair, and so much more. Do you like coffee? Well, they even have coffee that'll help you drop some pounds. And who doesn't want to drop a few pounds? Go check her out at her online store at lauramoreau.itworks.com today. That's lauramoreau.itworks.com. Like our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash TV. You can follow me on Twitter. It's twitter.com at TV. Subscribe to our YouTube page. It's youtube.com slash TV. Also, don't forget, we're now on Odyssey. Go support a free speech platform. It's odyssey.com. It's too late with Alan Mosley or at TV. If you're more of a listener than a watcher, Get us on your favorite podcasting platform of choice thanks to Anchor FM. It's anchor.fm slash TV. Dave, do you have a final thought? Uh, listen, I guess the only thing is it was kind of sad that he had to get drugged for so long, such a large portion of his life, just to prove that we're allowed to defend ourselves. But I like that we finally, like she said, we, we had to set the precedent. He, That's uh... It. Hopefully, if things work out for him, he's he's going to get a few chunks of change <laughs> from some people yeah. for the things they said and did, and then uh, and then he can ride off into the sunset, shooting shooting pedophiles till the end of his days. <laughs> uh, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of It's Too Late, and we will see you next week. <laughs>